happy to have you here, and uh, we are we are down to the uh, last two uh, messages in the Gospel of Luke uh, today and next weekend. And uh, it's been kind of an interesting week, kind of going back and looking at some of the places we've been in the last two and a half years. And uh, we're coming today to um, the concept of the Great Commission, the great mission that God's given us. I know it's something that many of us feel intimidated by. Um, And, you know, part of just kind of thinking through uh, this series reminded me, um, I came to Gateway over 20 years ago, and I... When I was in college, uh, I remember having to figure out what my major was going to be. I, I wanted it to be music. It's what I wanted to do in the church. But God had just kind of made it clear that was not the direction that I was going to go in. And so I really had two choices. I could either be a uh, pastoral uh, ministries major or a theology major. And so when I really looked them down and saw what the difference was, to me, the big glaring difference between pastoral ministry and theology was that in pastoral ministry, you had to take uh, preaching classes, and in theology, you didn't, so I went with theology. That was like the easy way, because I was absolutely uh, petrified of uh, speaking in front of groups and public speaking, giving speeches, all that kind of stuff. Not what I wanted to do at all, and so I just kind of went in the other direction. And then when I ended up in youth ministry, I was a little challenging at first, but wasn't too bad. I I started out in a small church with a small youth group, and um, so speaking in front of teenagers wasn't really, it didn't feel that intimidating. Uh, Then I came to Gateway, and I think when I came here, I think I'd preached maybe two sermons uh, in my life before I'd come here, and so when I came here, I was like it suddenly sunk in. I mean, I gotta gotta get up every weekend and do a sermon in front of a a bunch of adults, which you think would have been already on my radar, but I don't know, somehow it just kind of, I didn't really think about it. And so I I came and I started preaching on the weekends and it was a very, very intimidating thing. And in fact, it took me a little while. It was, it was intimidating to the point where um, it was very unsettling for my body. Uh, just put it that way. Uh, every Sunday morning, I was sick to my stomach. Every Sunday morning. And it was actually really convenient because at the time in the old building, my office was actually, it had actually been the nursery for a while. And so it had a bathroom, which was really convenient because that's where I hung out a lot on Sunday mornings before I preached. I was so nervous. My body was so upset. And this went on for weeks and then it went on for months. And I remember at one point kind of getting to this place of ministry where I, I wasn't, I, I didn't know if I could continue to do this. It was just so difficult and I had to get up on the weekend and it'd be so nerve wracking and speaking in front of adults. And then it took me like a couple days to get over and then it, you know, was coming again in a few days. And, and so I finally, at one point, I got together with a friend who had been in ministry for years, and we kind of talked it through, and he said, you ought to try reading this book, and you know, you ought to try praying or something about it, you know, just like, and I, I, I remember kind of finally, um, finally getting right down to it, and I, I decided to get away for a few days and to make a decision. How was, how, how was I going to deal with this? Um, it was just really getting to be a challenge. And um, I finally came to the conclusion, the rocket scientist that I am, I remember like being on my knees before God one day and just saying, you know what, I, I can't do this. 
I just can't. I can't get up every weekend and preach. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It was like a light came on and God said, duh. (laughs) Of course you can't. Of course you can't do that. It is too difficult. It's too, you can't get up and, and, and change people's lives. You can't get up and, and convince people to become Christians and to follow. You can't, do, you can't do any of that. What you can do is you can study the word, you can pray about it, and you can love people, and you can get up and, and just give what you've got and trust me with the rest. And you know, something changed for me when I, when I finally realized that. In fact, one of the things that changed was I actually started enjoying preaching uh, to a great extent because I started to realize how awesome it is that I get to stand up and tell people that there's hope, that there's a Savior, that uh, there's life beyond this life, that there's someone who took care of your sin and who, who took care of death. And, and that's actually true for all of us because God has called every one of us to share the gospel with people around us, all of us. He's called all of us to do this work. We might not all do it up here, but we all do it in places that we go. And what's true for me up here is true for all of us. None of us are really capable of doing the work that God has called us to do, but God is. And God loves to do that work through us. Now, three weeks ago, we were uh, in here talking about the crucifixion. We were covering the, the very difficult and brutal details of Christ being crucified on the cross. And we talked about the disciples who were watching him die on that cross and how they, when he died, they expected him to stay dead because the next weekend was Easter two weeks ago. We talked about the fact that, that uh, when Jesus died and when they, they put him in a tomb, um, everyone expected that he would stay dead and stay in that tomb. And so the disciples got together on the evening that Jesus was crucified and they locked themselves in a room. It may have been the upper room that they had been in uh, earlier. And they locked the door and then Sunday morning came. And so we've been talking the last few weeks about that first Sunday morning, that Easter morning. We talked about how um, the women went to the tomb and when they got there, they didn't find the body of Jesus and they assumed someone stole the body and an angel appeared to Mary Magdalene, and, uh, and then uh, John and, uh, and, and Peter ran to the tomb, and they found it was empty, and, and Peter ends up having an encounter with Jesus, and Mary has seen Jesus, and there's, uh, Pastor Bill walked us through the Emmaus Road last weekend, and two more disciples who hung out with Jesus, and there's reports flying around, there's crazy talk, you know, people are talking about rumors that some people had come out of the graves, and that the, that the temple was a mess, and the curtain had been torn in two, and all this, because all this reminds us that what we're talking about, what we've been talking talking about for the last few weeks and what we come to today is what we might consider really the ultimate victory. We're talking about this thing that's happened in history that's unlike, that's better than anything else that ever has ever happened. And we're going to pick up in verse 36 from last week. And it tells us this, as they were talking about these things. So again, the context is they're in the upper room, the door's locked. Uh, Ten of the disciples are there. Remember, um, Judas is no longer on the scene, so there's 11 then, and apparently Thomas wasn't there, so there's 10 of them, and they're all, they're they're talking about what they've seen and what they'd heard, and you know, John's telling about how he went to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there, and Peter's saying, no, I ran into Jesus, I talked to him, and Mary Magdalene's like, yeah, I saw him too, and and the the two guys on the Emmaus Road, they're talking about it, and there's just kind of this intense spiritual discussion that's taking place, and there's a lot of doubt, and there's a lot of fear, and people are telling their stories, and I I just picture they're trying to 
process it. See, they're, they're still not, they're not in the room like having a worship service and praising Jesus. The door is locked and they, they're just trying to figure it out. They, they, they can't quite put it all together. And while they're in there and, and talking about it, it says Jesus himself stood among them. So in the, if you put all the Gospels together, it, it, some just say, boom, there he was, and some say he walked through the walls. You know, he, he just materializes, and he's standing there, and he says, peace to you. Now, he says peace to you because it's a, it's a typical greeting, but also he knows they're freaking out because he's just, no one unlocked the door. No one heard the doorbell ring. He just, there's, there's Jesus. And I, 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 I don't know, I kind of picture him like standing there, like smiling, you know. I, I, one guy, one commentator is like, he was like school, he, he was really disappointed in them. And I don't think he was disappointed. I think he knew exactly what he was walking into. And I think he's just standing there in the corner and he's smiling, waiting for someone to see him, you know. And hey, yeah, hi Peter, how's it going? You know, he's just really excited about what's about to happen to them when they, when they see him. Verse 37, but when they saw him, they were startled. And actually it says they were, they were frightened. And they thought they saw a spirit. So they're, they're scared. They've already been scared. That's why the door is locked. And, and, and no one let him in. And then they see Jesus and they think it's a spirit. Here's the point. They, they have no category for what's happening. It's not like they, had sat, they sat down a few weeks earlier and they said, all right, now if Jesus shows up, you know, it could be this or this or this. They don't expect him to show up. And even now, even when he's appeared to several people, they still have no category. They, they don't see him and go, oh, well, there's Jesus. See, we knew you were going to show up. We, we knew this was going to happen. Hey, you know, high five, Jesus, welcome. And no, it's none of that. They, they think maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's a spirit. Maybe they're having some group hallucinatory vision. They don't, they don't know. They, they, again, they, they're trying to process it, but they don't know what it is, which, again, I just find so fascinating. They're not like, they don't point at him and go, see, we knew you were going to rise on the third day. They just don't know what it is. Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? You know, they're like, well, I don't know, because we saw you die. <laughs> you know, it was pretty brutal, and we expect you to stay dead. He says, why do doubts arise in your heart? Why are you troubled? Jesus says, I told you. I told you I'd rise from the dead. I think his main point is this. This is not a time for fear and being afraid. This is a time for a party, right? Now, let's think about this. Let's think about what just happened. I'm standing before you. You saw me die. <laughs> he's, he's, saying, he's just saying, put it all together. What, is it, what does it mean? He says, touch me and, and, and see. He, he says to them, touch and uh, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. He says, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he, he says, you know, give me a hug, you know, give me a fist bump and, and see what happens. I mean, think about this. This is your, this is your future. There's going to come a day when this life is over, when you breathe your last and suddenly you're going to see again and you're going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys are going to make eye contact. He might be, hey, come and check it out. You need a hug? You know, you need a high five? What do you need? Check it out, it's me. Can you imagine in that moment the things that are going to be going through your head? The things you're going to be feeling? The doubts? gone, the fear, gone, the questions, gone. But that's happening to them right here. 
And right now, it's an amazing thing. And it's, it's your future. It's mine. Now, some people will tell you, well, you know, Jesus, his spirit rose from the dead, but not his body. Or, or I like one guy I read this week said, you know, Jesus rose in our hearts. <sighs> okay, Jesus physically rose from the dead. He had a, he had a body. He had skin. He's like, you know, check it out. He had bones. He's got hands and feet. Other gospels say he still had his scars. But his new body is not exactly the same as his, as his previous body. It's new. It has a, a new material, maybe a new molecular structure or whatever that is because it's not subject to death anymore or, or illness anymore. And it's apparently at home on earth and in heaven. And it's interesting that the gospels make note that he still had his scars and, you know, I don't know, he's got the scars here and he's got the scars in his feet. Uh, another gospel says that he had a spear run through his side and he had, still had a scar there and maybe he had scars up here from the crown of thorns. I just think it's interesting. It's not like his new glorified body is like, you know, he had a makeover and plastic surgery and he's, you know, all looking like, you know, I don't know, like the 25-year-old Jesus or something. He's like got all the scars and the wrinkles and all that stuff. And that's just interesting because in our culture that's so obsessed with youth and cosmetic surgery and all that stuff, Jesus is like, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, when you think about it, what really characterizes Jesus better than his scars? I mean, it just tells us so much about him. I don't know, some people think that in heaven we'll kind of have, we'll, we'll be bodiless spirits and you know, we'll, we'll be like floating on clouds with wings and playing harps and, you know, that kind of stuff. But the Bible actually says that, that your physical body is going to be resurrected at some point and, and God's going to put it back together, but it's going to be like Jesus' body. It will be of a, of a new material. It will, not, it will not get ill anymore. It will not age anymore. You'll be able to eat and drink with this body. You won't have to, but you'll be able to eat and drink because you want to, because you like to, and, and I, I'm guessing it won't really have an impact on you like it does now. You'll be able to actually, you know, hug. You won't just get up to heaven and wave. You'll be able to hug, hug loved ones that you haven't seen for a while and the Bible says we'll have work to do, meaningful work. Um, we'll be able to, you know, visit with people. You'll be able to see loved ones that have gone before you. It's going to be amazing. They went before you, so, you know, they're going to be like, where have you been? And it's good to see you, and they'll have some stuff to tell you, and you'll be able to talk to them. And, and, and you'll be able to meet saints, you know. You'll, you'll be able to talk to, like, Peter, and, and talk to Paul, and talk to Moses. And you'll, you'll be able to find out whether Adam had a belly button or not. You know, you can talk to him and figure it out. Out and you know, just think about it. I mean, uh, no, you know, will there be parties to attend, but no doctor appointments, no dentist, no health insurance premiums, no locks on the door, no passwords on your computers? It's going to be completely awesome. And then in verse 40, he says this, and when he had said this, he showed them. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, so now something's changing here. It says, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, and that word marveling again is the idea, it's like these pieces they're trying to put together. They, they can't quite make it fit. He said to them, have you, have you anything here to eat? I'm starving. <laughs> so he like kind of brings it down. Now, first, it says we're told that they disbelieved because of a lack of faith. I mean, that, that's Peter when he's denying even knowing Christ. But now something's changed. Now they're disbelieving out of joy and wonder. Like, I don't know if you've ever 
been part of something that was so amazing, that was so joyous that you were like, could hardly believe it was, it was even happening. And that's kind of what's going on with them. We, in fact, we had that the other night. Uh, our, our youngest, our daughter's been in Arizona this year at college. And so it was her first year away from home. And we've missed her a lot. And uh, she was done with school uh, this past week, and so she called me up and said, hey, Dad, I got this great plan. Wouldn't it be really cool if I told Mom I was coming home on Sunday night, but I actually came home on Friday? So she was driving home uh, with her roommate who lives in Portland, and so we kind of worked it out. So, you know, I was like trying to not let on that anything was going on, uh, you know, for the whole week. And, and so Abby was driving home with the roommate. And then on Friday, I, and I, in fact, I told Abby, I'm like, I don't know, what am I going to tell mom? I got to go to Portland to pick you up. And Abby's like, just tell her you're going to Best Buy. She won't even ask any questions. So I did. So on Friday night, I was like, honey, I got to go to Best Buy and, you know, I'll be back. And so I drove to Best Buy across the river and Abby and her roommate met me there and got her in the car and we came home, kind of went around the back, you know, drove around the back of the neighborhood and you know, went in the, in, in the garage and closed the door and then I came through the laundry room when Abby was behind me real quiet and walked around the corner and I said to my wife, I'm like, honey, you got to see what I got at Best Buy. And she's just, you know, sitting on the couch like, oh, what is it now? And I'm like, no, you got to see what I picked up at Best Buy. Come check it out. And she walks around the corner and Abby's standing there and there's, and my wife is like, she, she starts laughing and she starts crying at the, I didn't even know that was possible at the same time. She's laughing and crying and she hugs Abby and she says, she, she she says out loud, is this really happening? Like she's just so excited to see her daughter. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. It's just like so awesome. Could this, I mean, just again, think about it. They're standing before Jesus who's risen from the dead. That's a lot of stuff to process, but it's all good. It's the, it's the best possible stuff. And then I love, here's a, so he says, do you guys have anything to anything to eat. So it's been, you know, Jesus just says, it's been a rough three days. You know, I mean, I mean, there was, a, there was in the garden and, you know, that was stressed out. And then they arrested me and there were no snacks, you know, involved. And they beat me and I got crucified. They locked me in a tomb. There's no mini fridge in there. I got out, been doing a lot of stuff. Does he need to, does he have to eat? No. Does, uh, can he eat? Yes. And I think he's really doing this for disciples. And then one of the really saddest verses in all of scripture, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, like a piece of fish jerky, like he just atoned for the sins of the world. And he gets a piece of fish jerky. So I was just imagining like, what would I eat if I had eaten for three days and I had a new body and I could eat anything I wanted and there were no consequences? Like what would I eat? We were talking about that the other night at home. I'm like, I don't know if I get like a huge steak or maybe I, actually what I thought was I might go, have you guys, anybody been to Killer Burger? Killer Burger? Okay. So I just like, I went there one time and it was so good, but it's like death on a bun. I could, I could feel my arteries literally hardening while I ate. So I've only eaten there once, but I was thinking like, I might go to Killer Burger and get like the biggest burger they had with double bacon and cheese and eat all the fries and I wouldn't have to worry about any of that thing. But Jesus just gets a piece of fish, you know, like that's, that's all that he gets and he eats it. He, he's not eating it for, for himself. I think he's eating it for them because he, he wants them to see that he's really alive in this body of his. Is he's, he's kind of giving them a, a picture of what they're going to be like one day. And so they're eating with him and they're touching him and they're, and they're speaking with him. And, and two really big things begin, I think, to, 
to kind of come together for the disciples and for us as well as we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Two things that, that cannot escape are noticed because they're huge. The first is this, that Jesus has conquered death. So for two and a half years we've been talking about the life of Christ, about his 33 years on earth, and this is what he has come to do, to conquer death. Now death is a result of sin, and death is, is, is contrary to the way that God designed the world. He didn't design the world for death, he designed the world for life. And many of us have, have had loved ones who have died, and we've had to be at the memorial service and think this is not right. This isn't right, and you know what? You're correct, because it's not the way that, that this life was meant to be lived. It's, it's unnatural, if you will, and up to this point in history, death has always won. But how Jesus has conquered death. All of it has been leading up to this point that we would have the confidence to know that he has conquered death. And he didn't do it for him because he's eternal. He did it for us. He's conquered death. And he's done that because he's also conquered sin. And it's sin that leads to death. He died to pay the price, the ransom, if you will, for our sin. And when we trust in Christ, in the work that he did for us on the cross and that he rose from the dead, then scripture says that we are forgiven of our sin and someday our body will die but it will rise again just as Jesus had risen from the dead and we will be with him forever in his kingdom with our new bodies with no effects of sin or suffering or shame or sadness which is why Paul will say later to live is Christ. He's just saying, you know, to live is awesome. I can live for Jesus and, and, and do all this stuff but he goes on to say and, and to die is, is gain. Because he says, when I die, I get to be face to face with Jesus. And what could be better than that? Because Jesus has conquered death and Jesus has conquered sin. And, and sin and death no longer have any power for us. As Christians, we don't need to fear either one of those because we follow a risen savior. We don't, we don't just follow an idea. We don't, we don't follow an example or a philosophy or a paradigm or religion. Folks, at the, at the bottom of all of this, all that we've been talking about for the last two and a half years is we have a savior who rose from the dead and he conquered sin and he conquered death and what could we need more in a savior than that? But that leads us to this thing, to good news. And we've talked a lot about this as we've been going through this gospel, the idea of good news. Um, in verse 44, he goes on and he says to them, he says, now these are th my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He says, you know, for our three years before I went to the cross, we were talking about this, Jesus says, all the time. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, Again, Pastor Bill talked about this last week, but he mentions um, the law. Those are the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. And what he's saying is, those are all about me. He's, Jesus says, you know, I know they're written a couple thousand years ago, but they were all about me. And the, and the prophets, they were, they were all about me. They were talking about me and the, the fact that I'd come someday. And the Psalms were, were a worship, basically a worship hymnal about Jesus and the wisdom literature. And basically... Jesus is just saying about the Old Testament from beginning to end was really about him. That's the primary purpose of the Old Testament. It revealed our sinfulness. 
It revealed our need for a Savior. It was to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And the Old Testament predicted a whole lot of things. It predicted that God would come in the flesh. It predicted that he would be born of a virgin. As we talked about in this series, it predicted that he would be born actually in Bethlehem, that he would live a sinless life, that he'd perform miracles and feed the hungry and give sight to the blind and cast out demons. It said that he would die by crucifixion. This was predicted before crucifixion had even been invented, uh, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would rise on the third day. The Old Testament says that he would ascend to heaven, that, that he would save those who trust in him. So it says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So for three years, he has, been, he has been telling them this stuff, and for three years, they haven't been getting it. So Jesus says, like, let's have one more Bible study. So I know we've tried this, and I know you've taken notes and all that stuff, and you haven't gotten it, so let's try it one more time. I mean, can you imagine what a teachable moment this is? Jesus is like, I want to talk to you about me rising from the dead. And they're looking at him going, all right. I just picture Jesus, he's like talking and, you know, and he's kind of moving his arms around. And I think they're just like mesmerized. They're looking at his hands and, you know, at the scars. And I picture he's got his tunic on and maybe it's, you know, pulled to the side and, and you can see the scar on the side. And they're just, they're pain. They're just hanging on every word that Jesus is, is speaking. And, and I think one of the reasons that he, he taught them from scripture, like first thing after they see him is because he didn't want their faith to rest on personal experience alone or even miracles alone, but he wanted it to be grounded in the word of God and in the scripture. Jesus had been telling them for three years he'd be arrested. He'd be crucified and resurrected and they didn't get it. So the solution is that God will open their, their minds himself. He will teach them at, he gave them understanding. The same thing is true for us today. If we are going to understand scripture, then we need God to open our hearts and our minds to understand it. Thankfully, that's why he's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand scripture. In verse 46, it says, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So Jesus is beginning to kind of move into what we think of as the, the, the mission or sometimes we call it the great commission. And he begins to say to them that, that Christ needs to be proclaimed. It, you've probably heard the quote, it's pretty famous, uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. St. Francis of Assisi said that. It sounds nice, it just isn't really that biblical. Because scripture actually calls us to proclaim the gospel, to articulate the gospel, to preach the gospel, to preach to, to people about our creator, about sin, the cross and resurrection, to tell people things like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The gospel is not vague spirituality, it's about a person. It's about Jesus, who lived, who taught, who died on a cross, and who rose from the dead. And that's the gospel. The gospel is just very simply Jesus. Jesus Christ is at the center of the gospel. Jesus came. He came to this earth, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died on a cross, and on that cross, he paid the debt for our sin. He rose from the dead on the third day, and he saves those who place their faith in him. 
What is the gospel? Well, we could, we, we could talk for months and years about the details, but in general, it's Jesus. Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and saves. And that is the gospel that God has given to us. And so he gives us the good news. And he wants us to do something with that good news. And we call it the, the, the mission or the great commission. And in fact, if you read, um, there's a, a, a version of the great commission in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's a fifth one that you'll find in the gospel of Acts. Five different occasions, I think, when Jesus articulates to the disciples what they're to do with this new life that they have been given. In verse 47 of uh, Luke 24, Jesus says this, and, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Now that, that word proclaimed there kind of goes back into some of the preceding verses about talking about Jesus. So we're to proclaim something here, he says. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins in, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So we're to proclaim, and there's a couple things that mark this proclamation we're to do. The first is this, it centers on Jesus. As we've talked about, the gospel is something we proclaim, that Jesus, again, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived, and that he died, and that he rose from the dead, and that he saves by faith. So we proclaim Jesus Christ. Not only do we proclaim Jesus, the second thing we find in the text here is that we are to proclaim repentance. So, you know, this kind of gets increasingly difficult for us in our culture. It's one thing to proclaim Jesus. And, and most people in our culture don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear about a Savior. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They really don't want to hear about repentance. Because when we talk about repentance, we're talking about sin. Not a real popular concept in our culture. Our culture doesn't like to talk about sin. Our culture doesn't want to deal with sin. And if they do, they just want to blame someone else for their sin. But the reality is, and Scripture says it again and again, we are all sinners. We're sinner by, sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. We've made that choice through thought and word and deed and motive. So what are we to do? How do we respond to the sin in our life? Jesus preached repentance, and now he's telling us that we are to go out and proclaim repentance. Now, that word repent, I don't know what picture you have in your mind, but at the, at the heart of the Greek word is simply the idea of a reversal. That's what repentance means generally. It means a reversal. So the idea of repentance is I was walking away from God. I wasn't believing in God. I was doing my own thing. Repentance means to turn around and to begin to walk toward God, to begin to walk with God. But there's a, a whole lot of stuff that goes with that. Uh, it means kind of to basically to change the way of our thinking. Paul often uses the word um, repentance in the, in the New Testament to give us the idea of changing our thinking. So I know a lot of times when we think of repentance, we think of changing the way we live. But essentially it starts with our thinking. It means we change the way we think about God, the way we think about sin, the way we think about life. Because, I mean, when you think about it, how we live, what we do, always follows what we really believe. And so scripture calls us to repent. To repent, to have a reversal in the way we think about God, about ourselves, about sin, and then to live that out. Now, classically, they'll tell you there's, about, there's like four different characteristics of repentance. There's conviction, confession, contrition, and change. Somewhere along the line, they all had to start with C, I guess. Uh, the C is for conviction. 
They'll say repentance involves conviction where you recognize your sin as sin. Obviously, that, that's where it starts. And, and this conviction comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes maybe from the Bible or from a sermon or from a person who confronts you. And, you know, a lot of times in our world today, we want to push back on conviction and shame. And, but what the Bible says is we should really embrace it. It's good for us to admit our sin for what it is, to, to feel convicted about our sin. There's conviction, there's confession. That's where we, we admit to God that our sin, you know, we call it what it is. God calls it sin, we call it sin. So we confess our sin to God. Scripture says sometimes we need to confess our sin to other people as well, but there's conviction and there's confession and there's contrition. Contrition simply means that you, you feel it. It means that, that you feel humbled, that you feel grieved, that you begin to feel about your sin, what God feels about your sin. Your sin grieves uh, God. It breaks the heart of God. It, you begin to own it in that way. So there's conviction and confession and contrition, and then there's change. That, that's the last thing. That comes as a result of all this. You begin to change the direction of your life by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the word we use for that is sanctification. It's, a, it's kind of a big theological word that simply means it's a process whereby God changes us slowly to become more like Jesus. It doesn't mean you're, you're perfect suddenly, but you're new. And God is beginning to perfect you through the course of this life as you repent. So we, we proclaim Jesus, and Jesus says we are to proclaim repentance, and then we are also to proclaim, he says, forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Uh, it means that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we can tell other people that their sin can be removed and that they will no longer face the judgment of God. Again, we talk a lot about this, that Jesus on the cross took your sin and mine, where he paid the price for it, and then he offers to us, if we'll, if we'll place our faith in him, he offers to us his righteousness, so that when God sees you now, and if, if you've placed your faith in Christ, as God looks down on you right now, that he knows who you really are, and he, he knows what you've done, but it's not what he sees. What, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus just all over you. And it, and it means that we, we kind of live in, a, in a, dual, a duality, if you will, of realities at the same time. We, we, we are both humbled. We, we live as humble people because what we realize is um, we are who we are because of what God has done for us, not, not what we have done. You know, so Scripture gives us ideas like, you know, um, all of us as Christians, none of us can brag that any of us have done anything to deserve salvation. Every one of us in this room came to Christ the same way, through faith, as a gift of God. None of us earned it. None of us deserved it any more than anyone else. So on the one hand, we, we, we walk humbly because we know that all that we are, every good thing in our life comes from God. But at the same time, we can also walk, we can stand tall. We can, we can hold our heads up because, see, here's the thing. We are no longer marked by shame. We are no longer defined by guilt. So that's a hard one for us, isn't it? To walk humbly, but also to realize we don't need to feel shame or guilt anymore for what we've done because Jesus, again, he died for that. It, it's not like, well, I, he died for our sin, but we just need to feel really bad all the time. And if we feel bad enough, then, you know, maybe we'll deserve his grace. It's, it's not like that. All, all your shame is gone. All your sin is gone. All your guilt is gone. 
So we walk humbly because of what God has done for us. But we also walk tall at the same time. We've been forgiven of our sin. We're to proclaim that. And then notice who we're to proclaim this to. To everyone. We're to proclaim the gospel. And I went for it on the wrong slide there. To everyone. Now I know, you know, our, our culture will say things like, you know, it's unloving to tell people they're sinful. It's unloving to tell people that, they're, that they need to be saved. I've had more than one conversation recently where I've talked with somebody, a non-Christian about Christ, and I'll talk, you know, I'll say, Jesus came to seek and to save, and I've had more than one person tell me recently, I but I don't need to be saved. I don't need a savior. I don't need anyone to save me. I'm just fine as it is. It, that's our culture, and so a lot of times we're afraid. We're, we're afraid to tell people that they need to be saved. We're afraid they'll push back. We're afraid they'll argue with us. You know, that, that's what our culture does. But Jesus says that's all backward. I mean, if you know the truth and you don't tell other people, now that's unloving. Not telling someone they're a sinner. Not telling someone they need a savior. Because everyone needs to know about Jesus. Everyone in your world right now who doesn't know Christ, they need to know about him. You know, even people with other religions and they're sincere, yes, they need to know about Jesus. Even atheists, even agnostics, yes, yes. Everyone who doesn't know Christ in our world needs to know about Jesus. And again, I, I find our culture will, you know, sometimes people say, well, if you've got to be a Christian, that's fine, but just, you know, tone it down and, and just let it be a private thing and just, you know, keep it to yourself and keep quiet and, and just, just like love people like Jesus did, right? People say that, like, just do what Jesus did. He loved people and he Jesus demonstrated the gospel and, you know, but don't preach and don't confront and don't proclaim. So just think about you know, what we've studied about Jesus over the last two and a half years. Did Jesus go around demonstrating God's love? Absolutely. You know, did, did Jesus heal sick people? Yes. Did he feed hungry people? Yes. Did he, did he befriend the outcast and, and give sight to the blind? Yes, he did all of that stuff. Has he called us to love people as well? Absolutely. But he has also called us to proclaim because that's what he did. He went around and he proclaimed that people needed a savior and that they could be saved from their sin because people don't just need good deeds, they need good news. They need to hear the truth. That's what Jesus said, the truth is what will set you free. And so Jesus says to his disciples, he's, he's got them seated there and he's, he's saying, so you need to proclaim these things. You need to proclaim me and you need to proclaim repentance, and proclaim forgiveness. And then he says to them, and, and you're witnesses. Right? Like you've seen this stuff. So you've seen some things and heard some things and experienced some things. Now go tell that to people. By the way, that's the same mission to us. You've seen some things from God. You've experienced some things from God. You've heard some things from God. You're witnesses of those things. That's what you need to go and tell people about. And so God is, Jesus is commissioning them here, if you will. And he's also done that to all of us. He's given all of us a mission. And what's, what's great is as you Read into the uh, second book of Luke, if you will. That's the, the book of Acts. Because I, at one point I told you this uh, two and a half years ago, the, book of, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were one book originally. And then they were kind of divided up for study's sake later on. They were both written by the same guy. And in, and in Acts, we, we see that the disciples do exactly what Jesus said. They, they unlock the doors and, and they go outside 
and they start proclaiming Jesus, and they don't really know what they're doing. They, they haven't gone to Bible college or seminary, or and they haven't gone through a church series on oikos or how to, they don't, they don't know any of this stuff. They just, they, they go out and they start sharing what they'd seen and, and sharing what they'd heard over the last, you know, three years, and, and they begin proclaiming, and, and they, people rebuke them, and they keep proclaiming and they're told if you don't shut up you know we're going to do something to you and they they keep proclaiming and they get arrested and they keep proclaiming and they get threatened and they they get thrown in prison and they keep proclaiming and they keep proclaiming until eventually most of them get martyred how do you explain it how do you explain the transformation from being in a lock in a, in a room with a locked door scared to death to being willing to go and be and be martyred and to die and the only thing that can explain it is they have a risen Savior who's conquered death and who's conquered sin. Because if you have a Savior who's conquered death and conquered sin, what do you have to be afraid of? The answer is nothing. What's the worst thing that people can do to you? Kill you, and then what does that do? That just sends you to Jesus that much sooner. They can't really do anything to you. And then Jesus goes on. He says, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So they're going to have to wait about 40 days for the day of Pentecost. Jesus says, don't, don't go just yet. I mean, I, I, I picture maybe they're all moving toward the door. You know, he's like, wait, wait. Okay, so I want you to go, but not just yet. You need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And, and here's why. This goes all the way back to what I said at the very beginning of the sermon. Because God has given us a mission that we are inadequate to fulfill. In the same way that I am inadequate to stand up here on the weekends and preach the word to you, we are all inadequate on our own to go out and share the gospel. And if you've ever felt uh, threatened by that or that's too difficult or that's too hard or I don't know how to answer questions, I'm not sure how to do that, then, you know, Jesus would say, well, you're, then you're getting it because you really are inadequate. But he's given that mission to us to take the gospel to everyone. We can't do it on our own and we don't have to. Because Jesus is going to give the church the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will empower them and, and give them spiritual gifts and, and open doors of opportunity for them and give them words to say. Because the Christian life is not about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us and in us and through us. And after Jesus ascends to heaven and we'll talk about this next week, the believers will gather together and the Holy Spirit will come down and empower them and they will take the gospel to the entire world. Now we don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit today because we receive the Spirit when we place our faith in Christ. But he says, stay in the city and, and, and wait for the Spirit. That's, that's Jerusalem. And that's where the church started. But it didn't stay there as the church began to spread throughout the globe. So I want to I close with this. I want to make a suggestion. I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, it all starts in your heart. Scripture comes down to this again and again and again, and we talked about this in Romans. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead. Isn't that great? Like of all the things that he said you need to believe, he said, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, because if God raised him from the dead, then he was who he said he was. And if God raised him from the dead, then he conquered death. And if God raised him from the dead, then he conquered sin. Do you believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead. Because all this other stuff we talked about is not important until you believe that. Do you believe that? That God has raised him from the dead. If you believe that God has raised him from the dead, it's important for you to notice what the uh, disciples noticed, and that is that the story doesn't stop there. God doesn't save us so that we can just kind of, you know, it's just us and Jesus for the rest of our life until we go to heaven. God has given us a mission. That mission starts at home. For the disciples, it started in Jerusalem. For us, you know, it starts in Washougal, it starts in Camas. God has given to each one of us an oikos, and we talk about this a lot of weekends. Basically, God has given us somewhere between eight to, they say on average, we have eight to, to 15 relationships, people with whom we have close, loving, influential relationships with. We interact with them a lot. And some of the people in our oikos, that Greek word oikos means household or extended household. These are kind of our relationships. And you may have some people in your family or relatives or people to go to school with or work with. But 8 to 15 people, you probably don't have 30 because that's too many or 100 and hopefully you don't have two, but you have somewhere between 8 to 15 people with whom you have loving, influential relationships and, and they are your oikos. That's your spiritual household. Now some of them are Christians and your job with them is just to encourage them spiritually and pray for them and support them, but some of them maybe are not Christians and this becomes important because God wants you to be a witness with that group of people. God wants you to both demonstrate the gospel and as we've been talking about, articulate the gospel. Because most people come to Christ somewhere around 96 to 98% of people through oikos relationships. Every one of you have an oikos, a group of people God has put in your world. So we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and then we begin to take that, that message to the relationships around us. But it doesn't end there as it didn't for the church. And then it started in Jerusalem and then it spread out to Judea and to Samaria and, and, and throughout the Roman Empire and eventually all these years later, for, the church went from 120 to 2,000 to 5,000 to millions and today to billions of people. Now, most of us, we will not be able to travel all over the world and take the gospel, but we can pray for those who do. We can financially support those who do. We have people in our church that go out from time to time, and, and we can go out with them, so to speak, as we pray for them and support them. But here's the point. God has given us a mission. A mission. It starts in our heart. So I'd ask you that question. Do you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead? And if you answer yes, then God has given you a mission. Not just to me, not just to our missions committee, not just to the staff and the deacons, but every one of us. You see, if we are going to be God's church, then we have a mission. And we cannot neglect that mission. So next week, we're going to come back together and we're going to talk about the ascension and, uh, and then we'll talk about a little bit about what we're going to do after Luke because believe it or not, there's life after Luke. So let me uh, pray for us and we'll be done.